last week, uh, bombings in Sri Lanka, we're praying about, uh, and we're going to pray for that again. And as well, just this week, uh, in a synagogue in California, shooters, and there's crazy people and demonic stuff going all, there you go, uh, demonic stuff happening all over the world, and more than ever, we need the church to be the church, a place of hope, a place of life, a place of love, a place of God's great grace flowing through us in our city and in our nation. And so can we just take a moment, and uh, we're going to pray right now, and I want you to pray along with me. I'm going to pray for these situations and for our city. Lord Jesus, I thank you, Lord, that though the nations rage, Lord Jesus, that, that you are on your throne, Lord. And Lord, I pray that in places where evil abounds, Lord, that grace would much more abound. Lord, that your grace would overflow. Lord, I pray for the situations just in this last week in Sri Lanka as families deal with difficult situations of losing loved ones. And Father, as they're uh, trying to hunt down the people who did it, Lord, I pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, that out of evil you would somehow bring good, Lord. We don't know how you can do that, but we know you can. So we ask you to do that. And just what happened in the last few days in California at that synagogue, Lord, we, we pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done. Lord, you would surround that family with your love. And Lord, I pray that uh, your grace would overflow in the situation. We pray for our city, for our nation. Lord, that the, ch that the church would be strong in the Lord. That we would be strong in the Lord. That we would be a place of life and hope. A place of great grace for our city. For people who are like us. For people who are very different from us. In whatever place they come from. Whatever the color of our skin, Lord. That the church would be what you've always called it to be. A, a place of absolute welcome for people. Where people can be loved in, in no matter what state or space that they're in. In the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Just felt we need to do that. Well, um, I was wondering, it felt like it was a little cold yesterday. I don't know if anybody else felt that, the wind blowing. And then I looked at what was happening in Edmonton. I was like, thank you, Jesus. There's like 20 centimeters of snow in Edmonton last night. People live there. Like, it's like they've been sentenced somewhere and they don't know. There's, you can go. Like, anyway, somehow, right? Well, I... Uh, I grew up not in the Lower Mainland. I grew up in a small town in BC, in the interior. Uh, I usually say Nakusp, but actually it was in a place even smaller than that, just outside of Nakusp, uh, called Burton, which are about 300 people in the, in the town, like you, this many people in my whole town. And um, growing up in a small town, uh, everybody knows you. There's a level of where they think you know you, there's a level where you think you know yourself, and then there's a level of who you really are. And when you grow up in a small town, people know all about your business. They know, uh, we used to have a party line that Mrs. Marshall used to listen to. So it would ring, ring, and then you could hear a click. For real, you would hear that going on. You're like, put it down. Like, oh, like we know you're there. But who you are was really a fun thing. And we had a reputation in our town, uh, five boys and one girl. Uh, so there was a little bit of a reputation of the Millers. I still go back to that little town, and they look at me at the grocery store. They say, you're a Miller, right? And I'm like, yeah. Are you Wally's boy? I'm like, mm, okay. I was, in fact, in a little uh, town in the interior just this last week and uh, talking to a pastor there. and We were chatting, and, and uh, I said, oh, you might know one of... Uh, you know, might, might know uh, a, a miller there named, uh, and I gave the name, and, and he said, yeah, I do. 
Yeah. And I said, he's my cousin. He's like, oh. And it just kind of ended right there. I'm like, okay, we're going to turn this conversation into another space. Because people think they know who you are. They might believe they know who you are through reputation for whatever. But I can remember this one time when I was very young. Uh, and we had a little bit of a hobby farm. Basically, that means it was a hobby for my dad to watch us pull the weeds and work. Like, that's what it meant. It's just big enough to be irritating. Uh, so <laughs> we had chickens, lots of them. I don't know what any Jenkins might have chickens, but we had chickens, five, 500 of them. That was our meat birds. I don't you know, five boys. Like, here we go. That's 100 each per year, two a week. Come on. And so here we were. Uh, we were in the front yard, and... There was no Netflix, there was no internet, there was no, uh, well, there was newspapers, but <laughs> hardly. We could, if you held the rabbit ears right on the TV, you could get one of two stations, either CBC or Como out of Spokane. And so we, we spent a lot of time outside. And basically, as soon as it got sunny, we spent the time outside, no shoes, no shirt, and some cut-off jeans. That's how it was. And we were like that from like May until school, and except on Sunday, we had to wear shoes. It was terrible. But I can remember this one time, and me and a couple of my brothers, you're, no Netflix, no music. <laughs> yes, there was music, but we weren't allowed to listen to it because it was the devil's music. But anyway... <laughs> You know what it was like growing up in the 70s. Come on. And so there we were, and we we're like, what can we do? So we had horses as well. So there's horse excrement. When it gets to a certain temperature and age, it dries a little bit. And they are really helpful for throwing at your brother. So... What do you do? One starts and then another one. And then you think, uh, knowing my life now, you're like, how did you even do that? I'm a little bit of a health aware person. Some people call it a germaphobe. I call it health aware. I don't get sick. But anyway, we were there probably because I used to do stuff like this, uh, throwing horse manure at each other. And we were throwing it and playing around. And of course, we have just shorts on, nothing else. And, and we're playing. And we noticed coming down the driveway was a man in a suit. And in our town, that usually meant one of two things. It was either a JW or it was a salesman of some kind. In this case, there was an election on and it was somebody trying to get our vote. And they came into our driveway and looking at us and we were taught to be respectful of people. So he comes in and we're like, hi, how are you? And, and we go to shake his hand and he kind of had a shocked look on his face. We didn't know really what was going on. You ask if our parents were there. No, they're not, because usually that's when this kind of stuff happened. Our parents were gone somewhere to get groceries or something, escape us. I mean, go help, yeah, escape us. Is right. And so there we were, and uh, we wondered why he uh, skedaddled. So, oh, there's a, can I, uh, a Miller word right there, a skedaddled. Uh, he left uh, really, really quickly. And then we looked at each other, and we realized why. There was horse manure in our hair across our face, all over our bodies, in our teeth, everywhere. And there, the legend of who a miller was grew that day. It's a great day. There's many, 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 many more stories about. And so when I go back there, people are like, you're that miller. Yeah. The story. Some of you have all kinds of stories. 
But in our world today, it seems harder and harder to really know who someone is. We communicate very, we live, tend to live more isolated and we t uh, communicate through social media, our uh, filtered photos and our best moments. Hey, take it again. I, I know some, it's not just young people that do it, but young people have like, you hear this term, my Instagram husband. What does that mean? That's the person, uh, I think it is, I could be wrong, they'll tell me later, but someone, a husband who goes with his wife solely on trips to take pictures of her that can go on her gram. It's a real deal. Is, is this true, young people? Yeah, it's a real deal. We pray for men like that, that they would grow up and become mighty men, but in that moment, uh, it's not always easy to know who you really are or who someone really is, I mean, but when we meet people, we want to try and find out who they are, so we'll ask questions what their name is, where they're from, oh, you're a miller, <laughs> uh, where they're from, what kind of work they do, where do they live next to, all those kinds of questions because we were trying to figure out who they are. Because when you find out who someone is, sometimes you go, hey, I would really like to get to know this person better. And you get a little closer. You're like, or you might be like, hey, I need to get a really far away away from this person right now. I don't want to get to know them better. Because when you understand who someone is, it determines whether you take a step towards them or you take a step back from them. Or you, if they have a truck, you always get to know people with trucks. One day you will have to move and you need to have people like that in your back pocket. I don't have a truck. Don't ask me. Okay, don't have one. So after, here it is in this week after Easter, and we had this question, who is Jesus? We talked a little, about, uh, a little bit about who he is last week, but I want to take a little bit more time because it's a question that Jesus asked his disciples, his followers in the book of John in chapter 20, which is the, the Gospels, which were written by the followers of Jesus to tell you a little bit about who he was. And he asked this question, who do people say I am? Who do you think I am? And he asked that question. It's been a question that's been pondered throughout history over and over and again. And people have different perspectives on it. This is uh, some famous people say things like this. The Dalai Lama said that Jesus Christ also lived previous lives. So you see he reached a high state either as a bodhisattva or an enlightened person through Buddhist practice or something like that. That's the Dalai Lama. Mikhail Gorbachev, who was the leader of communist Russia, said Jesus was the first socialist, the first to seek a better life for mankind. Martin Luther King Jr., the great civil rights activist, said that Jesus Christ was an extremist for love, truth, and goodness. Richard Dawkins, a scientist, said that Jesus was a great moral teacher, but somebody as intelligent as Jesus would have been an atheist if he had known what we know today. The Palestinian Authority peace negotiator, Sabah Rekat, said that Jesus is the first martyr, the first Palestinian. Albert Einstein said, the great, the famous inventor said, I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene called Jesus. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus, he said. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. All different perspectives. But you can't be all of those things because some of them are contradictory. It's clear that there are many opinions, uh, uh, reincarnated, enlightened Buddhist, a future atheist, the first socialist, a luminous figure, the, a Palestinian martyr, all those things. And still, so many opinions about who Jesus is. There are many different ideas about what he's about. There are many different thoughts about, uh, that are pure speculation, that are based on hearsay or what they, someone experienced or heard from someone else. 
But in our next number of weeks, we're going to be looking at who Jesus said he was in his own words. Because sometimes people like my, me and my family, they, people might have an opinion about who we are, but you don't really know who someone is until you get it, speaking from the country, from the horse's mouth, until you actually hear it from the other person, until you interact with them and discover who they really are. And sometimes I think we're following a Jesus that we've created in our own minds that will fit us, like these people that we just talked about, instead of the real Jesus. The Jesus who he said he was. And in that moment, because if we're following a caricature of Jesus or a cartoon character of Jesus, so to speak, then we're missing out on, we don't experience the fullness of life that he promised. Because we're not really following him. We don't experience the fullness of joy that he promised. We don't experience the life that he promised because we might be following somebody that is not really him, that is actually more like a cartoon character of who he is. And during Jesus' ministry, he used some figurative language to, about objects, the common everyday objects, to try and help us understand who he was and get a glimpse of who God is through in Jesus. And in the book of John, the Gospel of John, there are seven times in which Jesus says, I am this. And today we're going to look at one where each statement gives a glimpse into God's character and who God is. In John chapter 6 and verse 35 to 41, we're not, or 51, we're not going to read it all. This is the first of seven statements where Jesus affirmed who he was. And in every bold word, if you can say that with me, we're going to read a few verses here. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of there we go. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I am the bread of life. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give uh, for the life of the world. We'll talk about that in a moment because there's some things that might give you some questions. But before we do, we're going to pray and just welcome you, Holy Spirit, to speak to us. Thank you that you're here. And Lord, I pray that we would hear for ourselves what your word is to us. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you have ever had a food craving? How many of you are having one right now? Wouldn't some nachos be nice? Some of you just went there. Well, a number of years ago, one of my, uh, I was young, younger, younger, young I am now, younger was then. One of my uh, ex, uh, sisters-in-law who was expecting a, a baby, uh, I was on my way to the grocery store, and she said, could you pick me up an O. Henry bar, please? I was like, yes, I can. I was going to buy some milk or something like that, get the milk. I find the O. Henry bar, but then I came to the till, and there was two different chocolate bars for the same price as one O. Henry. What does a smart person do? They buy, they put that old Henry bar back and get her two other chocolate bars because she has now twice as much. That's a good idea. And when I got back to the house and I was feeling good, I'm like, I didn't get you just one nasty old old Henry bar. I got you two. Here's a Mr. Big and here is a coffee crisp. There you go. Two for the same price. And she looks at me and says, I asked for an old Henry bar. And I was like, but I got you too. I asked for an O. Henry bar. I was like, I'm going. I'm going to go get an O. Henry bar right now. <laughs> so I'll eat those two nasty chocolate bars. I don't know what, who thought of that. And I learned that day, do not get in the way of a food craving of an expectant mother. It's not a good thing. It would help me later when Shanda was expecting as well. That's why I'm here today. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> 
But what would you do for food if you were really hungry and met somebody that could multiply food? Just think about it. Multiply food. You go, could I have a burger? And they're like, you want a burger? Five, right there. Same price? Yeah. Woo-hoo. And here they are. In this passage we just read, Jesus had just a, a moments before had performed an incredible miracle where he multiplied uh, two loaves and five fishes and multiplied them and fed 5,000 people. It was a miracle, which means it's not usual uh, of, to happen. And so Jesus had done that. And these people were following him around and saying, Jesus, we want bread like that. More magic bread, please. Can we have that? Because if we have that bread, we won't be hungry. And in this passage, they're, they're looking at it and saying, Jesus, we'll believe you if you give us some bread. And I think most of us could identify with that. We would want to have a friend that could multiply your food. Anybody? Like, I think I would like that. And, and so Jesus had met a temporary need in their life, and it came to the place where they said, we want more of that, and they want more of that. They had a natural hunger... And they wanted Jesus to do and fulfill that so that they could enjoy life better. Jesus, if you'll give me enough to satisfy my appetite, then life will be good. Give me enough bread, and then life will be good. And maybe we might be looking at Jesus like that. Jesus, if you give me enough money, then my life will be good. Jesus, if you give me the right relationship, then my life will be good. Jesus, if you'd fix my husband, then my life would be good. And if we get what we feel like Jesus should give us, then we believe that our life will be good. I've got enough money. Good. My life is good. I've got enough friends. Good. My life is good. My health is good. Life is good. And that's okay. But what happens when the storm comes? Because difficulty does happen in life. There are times when things come against us that we're not prepared for. And when we're living from the outside in, if everything out here is good, then I'm good. When this isn't good, then I'm not good. Because sometimes this out here, can somebody say, yeah, this is not always good. It's not always good. Sometimes there's more pain than there is promise. Sometimes there's more difficulty than there is ease. Sometimes there's less money than there is bills. And and sometimes it's just difficult. And in those moments, if you live from the outside in and your happiness and your security is built on what's happening out there, you will be sorely hungry at times. When the storm comes, we're shaken. When we get a difficult diagnosis, we're rattled. When someone seems to reject us, we're anxious. And, re- and when things that we trust in are shaken a little bit, we're shaken. And Jesus was trying to get people to understand that life is more than just what you can see, taste, and touch. And if I just meet your natural need, it will only help you naturally for a moment. But I want to sustain you spiritually, not just naturally, but spiritually, because you live from the inside out. And he flipped the story on them and said, we're talking about bread I just made a whole bunch of bread. Now I'm talking about a different kind of bread. You think that you just need this kind of bread? You need a bread for, the, for who you are on the inside. It's going to literally change your life. He was showing them and challenging them to move from looking at me as a temporary fix 
to moving and looking at me as the, the one that will fulfill every need of your heart. Not just when everything's working and I got it all good, but when in the middle of every storm, in the middle of every difficulty, in the middle of every painful time, that I am with you and I'm helping you and I'm moving you through. I can satisfy you in a way that the bread never can. I can satisfy you in a way that the money never will. I can satisfy you in a way that this thing over here, when the relationship that you thought was going to be it all never will, I will satisfy you. This, this stomach will get empty again. But when I fill the stomach of your life, when I fill your spiritual need, something begins to shift inside of you and I'll fill you and you will never be hungry again. They wanted a temporary fix for their hunger pangs. And Jesus said, I'm going to help you fix the hunger pangs of your soul. And most of us have hunger pangs in our soul. And words that might describe that might be things that are showing you that there's some hunger pangs. Frustration. Fear. Anger. Anxiety. Discouragement. Weariness. Your soul is hungry. Depression, addicted to approval from people, loneliness, inferiority, insecurity, workaholism, lack of peace, resentment. And we start, those start as words describing our feelings. And eventually, if they're not dealt with, they become words describing us. And our problems that don't get dealt with becomes, become prophetic words of our future. And so how we handle the hunger pangs is incredibly important. I was reading this this week, uh, an article, and it said this. Here's some clues that you're hungry. One writer noted that these days dissatisfaction seems to be swallowing us whole. While standing in checkout lines, having dinner in a restaurant, or waiting for coffee, you can't help but overhear the conversations of people. And more often than not, these conversations are filled with what everything that's missing. We are not satisfied with our work. We are not satisfied with our love lives. We are not satisfied with our bodies. We are not satisfied with the options that life seems to have left us. We are not satisfied with the quality of life. And the more energy we spend trying to achieve satisfaction, to fill the hunger of our soul, the more empty and elusive it seems to become. How, do you, how you satisfy your hunger pangs is incredibly important. In the natural, when I'm physically hungry, often I'll come home, and I used to do this way worse than I do now, but it still happens. Come home, and you're hungry. Dinner's there, but there's a bag of chips in the cupboard right there. And they are, they are like, Craig, you need to eat this entire bag. And you take out that bag of sour cream and onion chips, which are God's gift. And if they're ripple chips, it's another level. And I'll sit and I'll eat those, and... And I'll take a few, and then suddenly the bag is empty. I, I don't know what happened. Anybody else ever have that happen to them before? I know you all holy people out there never see that happening. But there I was, and I eat it. Because when you're hungry, you're more vulnerable to do dumb things. If you go shopping when you're hungry, be prepared for a larger bill. Because you're like, I need that. I need that. I need that. And you get home. Who bought all this stuff? We never buy this stuff. I was hungry. <laughs> Stop in Costco, get the $1.49 burger or a hot dog first, and then, then move on. Then you'll save yourself a lot of money, the best $1.49 you'll ever spend. And in the same way, when our soul is hungry, 
We are vulnerable. We have the potential to make poor, short-term choices that have long-term negative impacts because we're trying to fill some hunger in our soul that we already talked about, depression, insecurity, inferiority, anxiety. We try to fill it, and psychologists tell us that there are 10 common ways that, we, that are short-term fixes or attempts to fix the hunger of our soul. And I'm just going to roll through them. These are the top 10. We avoid it. Nobody. We smoke something. Retail therapy. Lots of caffeine. These are, these are things, and I'm not judging anybody that drinks lots of coffee. I'm just saying that these are sometimes the things that we try to still the noise, push through. Sometimes we just, just try to escape it. Netflix binging, work, leisure, social media, computer games. Someone said this, Ruth Barton, who's a Christian author, said, we distract ourselves with technology so we don't have to pay attention to the unresolved issues within us. Binge drinking. It's not always about being drunk, but regular comfort drinking, getting your buzz on. Excessive sleep. Some of you are like, I'd like some of that. I got three kids. Number eight, promiscuous, consuming porn looking for satisfaction in some kind of sexual thing and adultery and uh, emotional affairs and all kinds of stuff. Emotional eating, that tub of ice cream, the bag of sour cream chips, the one dozen cookies. Hope to feel better. Others will stop eating completely. Others will start overeating. We get, and the truth is, we get instant and temporary fixes. It's true. If it didn't feel better, we wouldn't do it. But for a moment, it feels better. But the problem is, and this is what is shown, is that when we use these coping mechanisms, they temporarily mask or stop the hunger pangs. They stop you from feeling awful, but they actually increase the dysfunction or the issue you're fighting by strengthening and maintaining it because you never deal with it. The hunger pangs. How you fill in your stomach. And Jesus was saying to those people and to us today, you don't need to look elsewhere for spiritual food, for nourishment, for sustenance. I am your life. I am the bread of life. You need to believe in me. And Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. It says comes. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I am the bread of life. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give you for the, uh, which I will give for the life of the world. Doesn't mean that you actually eat the flesh of Jesus. It's talking about how Jesus gave his life so that we can walk into real life. Jesus claims in his own words, I am the bread of life. Everything else is secondary substitute that will never satisfy you. I am the bread of life. He makes an incredible claim. And you'll never be hungry. You'll never be thirsty. You'll never die. So in this life, the fullness of Jesus comes when we receive him. And it's not just in a moment where you make a, say, I follow Jesus. But much, much more than that. The eternal food of life, Jesus himself, he said, I am life. I don't give you life. I am your life. I am your life. There's three Greek words, and I'm not going to bore you with the words themselves, but one just simply means life, words for, three words for life. One means life. One means our mental life, psyche. And then one means another word that Jesus is using right here. He's talking about zoe life, supernatural life, 
life that comes from the inside out. So we need to have a healthy body life. We need to have a healthy thinking, mental life. But we also need to have a healthy soul or a healthy spirit on the inside. And those words, he says, when you're full, you'll make uh, much fewer unhealthy eating choices. Your life will be better. When the bread of life is in you, you'll be less likely to be rattled by the opinions of others. When the bread of life is in you, you'll more easily shake off the choke of anxiety. When the breath of life or the bread of life is in you, you'll more quickly find a deeper strength that helps you to overcome what you're walking through. Are there other sources of food that you have been looking to to give you life that have been failing the grade? Relationships that have failed you, pornography that is corroding your soul alcohol that's numbing you, excessive work that is destroying you and your family, pleasing people, hiding in technology, stopping eating, overeating. Jesus claims to be the satisfaction, the very life that we need, and we fill up on so many other things and never or rarely or not often enough experience the life that Jesus promised. It's not a have to, it's a get to. It's the best life ever is found in following Jesus. And he said this, how do we access it? John 6, just a little bit further down, verse 63. He said, the spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. Everybody say the next word. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. The words are life. The words I speak to you are life. The words I speak to you are life. In some mysterious way for us, Jesus abides in the very words that he speaks that come out of his mouth. His words are not just empty wishes. His words also have the power to accomplish what he said that he would do. I'm going to, I'm going to come and be life to you, then that is not just an empty word or a hope. It's something that comes into the very heart of who we are and begins to shift us and feed us on the inside. The word of Jesus for you is stronger than every word that has come against you, stronger than anxiety. The word of Jesus is stronger than the word adulterer. The word of Jesus is stronger than the word apathy. The word of Jesus is stronger than discouragement. The word of Jesus is stronger than anxiety. The word of Jesus is stronger than the word of frustration. The word of Jesus is stronger than the word of you're a failure. The word of Jesus is stronger than you. The word of God is stronger. The word of Jesus for you. And I'm not just talking about this word. We're going to talk in a moment about that. But what does the word look like? How does it bring life? Jesus himself had been all alone in the wilderness fasting for 40 days. And the devil came to him to tempt him. Because when you're in your low space, when you're in a spot where you might be hungry, that's when the devil comes at you. That's when temptation comes at you. He's not some guy in a big red cape uh, with a nice little pointy horns. He has come to steal, kill, and destroy your life. But when he comes, he comes when you're low. He comes when you're weak. And if you're not filled up on the inside, you are vulnerable to temptation. And here Jesus was. He had been fasting and praying and seeking God. And the devil said, hey, I know you're hungry. Understatement. 40 days not eating. Make some bread out of these rocks. And he says, "Mm -mm, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to give in to your temptation. Because look what he says now in the word. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. His word helps you resist temptation. His words help you to say no to some of the other things that you might be filling up your life on. His words help you to say no to the destruction of pornography. His word to you helps you to say no to anxiety. His word helps you to say no to the frustration that's been trying to overwhelm you. His word comes in and brings life into dark places. His word comes into places places where you're discouraged and says, breathe again. His word comes into places that you have given up on and says, believe again. 
That's what the power of the word of Jesus does. If you're running on empty, his word can help you resist. How did God create the world? With a word. We also see in Hebrews 1.3 that the Son, or Jesus, is the radiance of God's uh, glory, sustaining all things by his powerful word. What's he sustaining? All things. Who's he sustaining? You. Who's he sustaining? Me. Who's he sustaining? Your family. All things. And let the word of Christ come to you that he's sustaining all things because the word of Jesus for you is stronger than every word that would come against you. Jesus is the word and his word sustains me. There are two Greek words for word. We just have one word, 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 word. The Greek has logos, and it has another word called rhema. Logos is the word to everybody. So that's like the Bible. All this, the Ten Commandments, the Sermon on the Mount, all that is right here. That's the word of, of God to everybody. And then there's when God causes a word to come alive, it's called a rhema word. It's a specific word to a specific person for a specific time. For example, I could say to you all, I love you, and it would be absolutely true. Shanda's sitting on the front row, it also applies to her. But if I went and said, I love you, <laughs> suddenly that word is personalized, and you should have seen the heart rate on her watch just start to go up, right, just now. Because it's a personal word. The same word, but it became personal to her. And suddenly something began to shift inside her. Her heart began to beat a little faster. She started a little bit flushed. Actually, that's me. I'm flushed. But the right word at the right time. The word of Jesus for you is stronger than the word that comes against you. Whatever label that's been labeled over your life. Everything that people said you'll never be more than, you'll never come through that. Mm -mm. The word of Jesus over your life. See, the disciples were in a powerful storm. They're fearing for their lives. They were in this boat, and it was wavy. They were fishermen, but they were losing their minds. And they actually wake Jesus up. Who's sleeping in the storm? Lots more there, but we're just going to go to one thing. They say, Jesus, don't you care that we drown? And it says he got up. And he stands up and he speaks to the storm with a word and says, peace, be still. In the storm, and some of us need to hear the word of God for us today. You might be in a moment where you're in the middle of a storm that's threatening to overwhelm you. And you're saying, Jesus, don't you care that I'm drowning? Don't you care what I'm going through? Don't you care about the pain? But let him speak a word to you today. Let him speak a word to your, into your situation. Let him speak a word of hope. Let him speak a word of courage. Let him speak to the storm that you're walking through. And greater is he that's within me than anything that's in the world. That God is for me, that no one can stand against me. That God can turn things around in a moment. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Because what the word does, he can calm your storm. But sometimes the storm keeps raging. There was the apostle Paul who was a follower of Jesus and he was in a prison in Jerusalem and I think it's Acts 21. And he was in a prison. He had almost been ripped in half by a mob and he was thrown into jail and it was terrible. And in that moment, as most of us would be, are we going to die? Fear. But in Acts chapter 23 and 11, it says this, the following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, a word, take courage, take courage. 
And Paul went on to move forward in what God. But a word breathed life, breathed courage where there was fear. And we don't need just a word of the newspaper. We don't need the word of social media. We don't need the word of Fox News. We don't need the word of our opinion of our neighbor. We don't need the word of our past. We don't need the word of our pain. We need the word of Christ in the middle of it because sometimes he calms the storm, but sometimes his word comes to calm you. Let the word of Christ, Jesus himself, dwell in you richly through faith. And we can hear all kinds of words. Give up. Give up on God. Give up on your marriage. Quit the words of others. You're going down. You're not coming back. This defeat, this setback's too much. Quit. There's no way out. You're an adulterer. You're a divorce one. You're a failure. You're an insecure. You're unwanted. You have anxiety. You have all this. But let Jesus, the bread of life, breathe a sustaining word into you and begin to shift you from the inside out. Because you don't just need to hear this word, although that's very important. You need to allow Jesus himself to begin to speak inside you and cause this word to come alive. You can hear a rhema word, that right word at the right time, in the middle of a worship set and you're singing a song. And suddenly something hits you on the inside and it grabs a hold of you and say, No, I am who he says I am. It doesn't matter what somebody said. Oh, uh, no weapon formed against me is going to prosper. And in the middle of this situation, I'm going to stand and I'm going to hang on. There could be somebody preaching, hey, 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 and they preach something and you're like, that's for me, pastor. I'm grabbing a hold of that. I'm going to keep moving forward because God is for me and I'm going to do that. Or you can be reading your Bible and God breathes a word into you because the word, the rhema word, the right word at the right time to the right person, you begins to give you a weapon to fight with because the word of Jesus in you is stronger than every word that would come against you. The communion people, baptism people, the worship people, all of y'all get ready. May as well take a break because like 48 people are going to leave. Bye. We'll see you soon. It's going to be baptism. I think we got eight people getting baptized today. It's going to be wonderful. We have a whole bunch of new people doing, uh, serving communion. They're going to be great. Smile at them. Don't, don't ask them for a special cup or anything like that. It's going to be good. But you need the word of Christ to come to you. In 2002, we were in a space where we were nervous about making a change of jobs and churches from Campbell River to Courtney. We were in a great space. I was in a job where I was making the best money I'd ever made in my life. We had benefits. We had all the good stuff going outside of working outside the church. It was wonderful. And we were, had this invitation to come and pastor in a church in Courtney. And we just could not get settled. It'd be a big change. It'd be challenging. It'd be out of our comfort zone, leaving a good job, leaving friends that had become family to move into another place. And we were so unsettled, we didn't know what to do. And one morning was reading this word, the Logos word, the written word of God in Acts chapter 3. And it's a story where Peter heals a, a lame man. And part of it was Peter stretched out his hand and as he did and pulled the man up and it says, as he did, he was made well. So as he moved, he was made well. And it was like a word came into my spirit in that moment, if I can speak. Jesus is spiritual. He's not just a bunch of do this and do that. The word of God came into my heart in this moment and I said, wow, 
and I felt like Jesus was saying, you won't feel the peace. You won't feel the breaking of confusion. You won't feel the, the anxiety going and settledness coming until you give your yes. You say yes, and then I'll settle things down inside of you. I was like, I don't really like that. I want to know everything, and then I'll decide if I'll agree with you. But I felt this faith come in me in that moment. Say yes to the unknown. Say yes to the, to, to the unknowable, and I will bring peace. So I went to work, and when I came home, Shanda met me in, at the doorway with my slippers and a cigar. No, I'm just kidding. She told me that she got a word in her devotions. I said, I did too. And she proceeds to tell me, Craig, I was reading this morning in Acts chapter 3 about the story of where Peter uh, healed a lame man. And when I came to that phrase, and when I came to that phrase of as you do, as he did, I felt like God said in that moment, I'm going to settle things down. Wow. Powerful. Powerful. It will. A word came. Settle it down. We'll just let the communion elements pass. Jesus never intended for any of us to have to work up our courage and strength and face life alone. We need his life. We need his courage. We need his strength. He sustains all things with his word. He sustains you. And sometimes he calms the raging circumstances and the storm that we're going through. Sometimes he calms us with a word. The word of Jesus for you is stronger every word against you. Just as you're waiting, if you've already received, just take a moment and quiet yourself and reflect on this. These are, if you're new to church, these are, this little cracker represent 
the body of Jesus that was crucified for us. And this would, this little juice represents his blood. We're paid for the forgiveness of our sin, reconcile us to God. So when we take this, we're saying, we remember what Jesus did and his sacrifice for us. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says this, one of the apostles said, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In other words, you're saying, God, everything that you did for me, I receive it. I give you everything. So it's a, it's a covenant, a representation of the covenant that we make with God. And simply a covenant means that both people are all in 100%. So say, God, I give you everything, my, the good, the bad, the ugly, the failures, the successes, everything in my life, I give it to you, and I receive from you everything that you have for me. We win on that deal. It's, it's saying, God, I proclaim your death until I come, until you come, which means that his death, I proclaim it over my life that I have forgiveness because of his death. I have life because of his death. I have hope because of his death. I have healing available to me because of his death. Thank you, Jesus. In this moment, just to invite you to take the... Thank you for your blood that was shed for us for the forgiveness of sin. Thank you, Lord, that though we were once far off because of Jesus, you paid the price for our sin. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for going willingly to the cross to reconcile me to the Father, to reconcile each and every one, to make available to us the family that is, that is Jesus, through Jesus, the family of God. We do this in remembrance of you. We thank you.